This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 146, about Jessica Jones, season 2, episode 8, aka Ain't We Got Fun. Welcome back, fellow Defenders. This is Derek on Defenders TV Podcast, episode 146, talking about Jessica Jones, season 2, episode 8, aka Ain't We Got Fun. Yes, uh, welcome back, fellow defenders. Um, yes, Chris has left the cell and has fled with our money to our safe place. Well, I hope he goes there. Otherwise, um, we're down a few quid. Yeah, and we'll never know where to find him. Exactly. Um, so Chris, wherever you are, keep in touch. Um, I'm sure. And I know, in fact, that you will be with us once again for our next podcast. But yes, I am one of your other hosts, John. Welcome to AKA Ain't We Got Fun. So hopefully it's a fun podcast. Let's hope so. <laughs> Yay. It, well, it should be because Janet McTeer was absolutely hilarious in this in a really good way. There's some great moments in here for definitely. Uh, as usual, if you want to get access to everything we cover on our podcast, uh, all of the stuff from Doctor Strange Damnation all the way back through all the Defenders shows, just pop on over to our website at DefendersTVPodcast.com. All the links are over there to subscribe to the podcast on any of your sober or drunken podcast catchers. But I think we should get into our feedback on some of the previous episodes of Jessica Jones, John, what do you think? Yes, our first bit of feedback comes in for episode six, and it is from Tina Brown by way of our Facebook group. Yes, it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Defenders TV podcast. Tina says, great reveal. Absolutely did not see that coming, but I think this season is still suffering from pacing problems. And the following are my opinions but I honestly think that the season is not strong as it could be because of message overload. I felt like the interlude with the gentleman at his golf course was more to check certain boxes rather than to advance the plot. Once again, an all-male establishment, women not allowed. Do you get it? There really is no need to hit the audience over the head this hard. Trish is a junkie who wants to help people, but is sadly more famous because of her celebrity. This has been covered in almost every episode, sometimes twice. Jessica is lost, pushes people away, but beneath her crusty exterior has a transcendently beautiful soul. If you don't see it, let's literally paint a picture for you. And while I don't think this happened in this episode per se, I'm kind of pissed that rando characters feel free to offer these opinions of her because I feel like they haven't earned the right to have those observations. The super who is only just getting to know her, the rival PI, even the cop, they haven't earned that kind of shorthand. Malcolm, Trish and Jerry can do this, but I don't like seeing it from everyone else. And I don't think the show is doing as good a job as, say, Defenders drawing the storylines together. Trish's struggle, Malcolm's development into whatever he is becoming and Jerry's issues don't seem to be grounded as much in Jessica's story as I would like. It could all be tighter as far as I'm concerned. Looking forward to seeing if the mum reveal can be the catalyst to pull it all together, because right now I really feel the loss of Kilgrave as the central villain and catalyst. Thank you, Tina, for those points. I definitely do think that for this season of Jessica Jones, that loss of Kilgrave can potentially be a big factor. Um, he was such a big antagonist, played so well by David Tennant, um, and hugely memorable that you need 
um, either a similar level or, you know, um, it done in a different way. For me, I definitely think now that with Janet McTeer, and I mean, we're about to review episode eight, really is fulfilling that for me. I am, um, I really like it in a very different way. And of course, she's not necessarily the big bad. And maybe there is no big bad here. Um, although the final part of this episode really suggests there may be someone who we've not necessarily thought of and mm. um, firing that gun. Spoiler alert. So I definitely do agree that, you know, coming into this, not having Kilgrave as such a fabulous antagonist um, could potentially have uh, and provide issues here. I think in terms of do you get it? I think you do. I think we do. But I think people still don't in some in some respects with regards to whether it is uh, the treatment of women in um, certain industries, maybe certain uh, male only member clubs. I get entirely what you mean here that, you know, possibly that that has been pushed enough. Um, but certainly, I think there is um, a potential here for the female directors and the female showrunner, as well as the female writers, to really just, you know, keep that memory going and just reminding people. But certainly, you know, because it links into uh, real life, certainly um, you, you do have to kind of pace that. I do think ultimately that, you know, all these plot points will come together. I think it's still quite early in the season, if you're on episode six, where things are still sort of being pulled together, um, there's still a reminder of what was going on uh, in season one. But uh, I, I hope they do anyway, because I, I do see what you mean um, with just repeatedly saying that Malcolm used to be an addict, Trish used to be an addict and also struggled with fame, uh, and that actually Jessica is really, really good. Um, and I certainly loved your um little critique there about you know if you don't see that jessica has got a beautiful soul we will literally paint a picture for you but i think um fair observations absolutely and thank you so much for for your feedback tina and it does feel very different this season without a main villain because remember in season one we had Kilgrave present from the beginning of the show from episode one we had Jessica waking up to these thoughts of the purple man whereas this season it does feel much more like an antagonist and we're starting to see these moments as we'll talk about later on this episode where where that antagonist seems to be the villain for the series episode eight is upon us now we've only got five episodes left at the end of the season so the chances of them bringing in a huge supervillain now towards the end of the show seem unlikely uh, at the moment. Uh, let's go on to some more feedback. Thanks so much for that, Montina. Um, so episode seven feedback. Jamie Young says, loved this episode. I loved seeing the origins of the leather jacket and it was great seeing a young, happy Jessica, even though we knew it would be short-lived. Also short-lived, Trisha's pop career. Thank God. <laughs> Absolutely. Cray, cray off, I think, uh, on that one. <laughs> I still can't get that song out of my head, though. Thing is, I absolutely love pop. But even that one was a little too much. I think it was just it was just pitched right, to be honest for me. I thought it was I thought it was a perfect description of what I see in Miley Cyrus and Britney Spears when they're at that point in their career that they're willing to just sing a an auto-tuned song, even though they used to have a good voice. They're willing to sing an auto-tuned song just to get in the charts and keep their career go going. As Chris was saying, um, it's quite interesting to see this character who didn't have a voice, she was a child star, didn't have a voice 
being given five lines to sing over and over again and make a raunchy video just to get keep her career going. Uh, I liked that kind of idea for for Trish. Yeah, and some more episode seven feedback as well. Tina again here. As interesting as I found this episode, and it is one I have gone back to watch again several times, when the pacing is kind of slow, it's difficult to have a complete flashback episode and not have it feel like padding, which is sadly how I thought this felt the first time. We have had so much character development over plot that I'm getting antsy. This is still a Marvel show rather than a straight-up drama. I'd love to feel more like a hybrid the way Season 1 and Daredevil do so well. It's really interesting, actually, Tina. I do know what you mean with this episode. I, when I was watching it, felt like it was completely drawn out. And actually, it was only until we sat down and myself, um, Derek, and Chris discussed it that... I actually changed my opinion of it, but I do know exactly what you mean. And I, I, I kind of looked at it more as seeing, you know, so many different routes to where Jessica has come from. Mm. And that was what made me really appreciate that episode. But I do remember the first time I watched it, I was like thinking that just really didn't work for me. Not to say that I would not have defended it, but when we actually started discussing it, I was changing my out of five because uh, it just improved in my mind as I talked it through. Mm -hmm. But uh, I definitely know what you mean, for sure. Flashback episodes are such difficult things to do. I know we had one in the cage, which I thought was, was fun. This one particularly, I really enjoyed because I think they were slightly taking a bit of the piss about some of the flashback stuff. You don't really need to know where Jessica gets her leather jacket from, for example. But I thought it was fun to find out. And it does give an extra weight as to why she always wears it all the time and why it's reminding her of her dead boyfriend. Um, that it is a comfort blanket for her almost because it reminds her of better times. And even though it's a silly throwaway thing, I still think they did it very well. And I must say, I really enjoyed having that flashback episode because you can kind of then move on with the story from that point onwards. You kind of go, okay, now I know where she was before everything happened. We know it was caused by her mother in some senses. And now this will take us on for the rest of the season as to how she's going to treat Alyssa from this moment onwards, why she treats her the way she does. So I don't think it could have been told in a five minute flashback. I think it needed that breath of give us some time with the old Jessica before the show's all started. Yeah. I mean, Okay, slightly spoilery for, for my thoughts actually on, on this episode, the following episode, but I suppose, you know, that huge moment of effectively Sterling being killed by Jessica's mum is really massive for this character. And yet in this episode, I felt it didn't get enough treatment. Okay. I think with that, little bit of a spoiler for the podcast already, but this is a spoiler-filled review of Jessica Jones, All Our Thoughts. But Derek, what are some of the episode details for AKA Ain't We Got Fun? Well, this episode was written by Gabe Fonseca, uh, first Marvel episode, but has written some episodes of the legal drama Private Practice and Medical Drama The Night Shift. So has got some precedence in there for uh, for some other types of drama shows. And the episode was directed by Zetna Fuentes, who has done episodes of iZombie, of Shameless US, and of Pretty cool. Little Liars, and loads, loads more shows as well. Absolutely. F fantastic. Uh, love iZombie. 
And Shameless US is such uh, a good remake Isn't of it? the original Shameless from the UK, mm-hmm. set on a council estate in Manchester. So I know it well. <laughs> it's based around your family, isn't it? No, it's not. <laughs> we were nothing like that. No, it's not. Not at all. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the episode? Sure. In the cellar, Jessica contemplates her next move as she is held captive by Dr. Carl Malice and her mother, Alicia. As her mum noisily makes breakfast, Jessica calls the police, forcing Malice to flee. But Alicia stays, hoping to convince her daughter that despite everything, she is the same person from 17 years ago. Elsewhere, at breakfast, and the morning after the night before, Malcolm notices Trish behaving erratically, and he confronts her about the IGH inhaler she took from Simpson. As tempers flare, Malcolm leaves to pursue the investigation into Hogarth's partners. As his PI skills hit their stride, he discovers both another side of Benowitz and a familiar side of his own that he has trouble controlling. In Jerry's apartment, after new information from Inez about the patients at IGH, she visits a man called Shane Ryback in prison. Jerry takes on his case pro bono, as her new client can heal people with his hands. Back at Jessica's apartment, the door opens as in walks Jessica and Alicia. A change of heart by Jessica led them to flee Malice's house before the police arrived. However, despite the strain between them, back at the apartment, the tension in the air is cut through by a few whiskies and a gunshot. I've never felt like going on to the next episode more than I did in this one. Definitely. And really interesting Obviously, we were wrong. We knew it wouldn't be Danny Rand with the healing hands, uh, but confirmed in this episode, not Danny Rand, not Iron Fist coming to give his healing hands to Jerry Hogarth. Someone brand new. Yeah, Shane Ryback. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, we did know, absolutely. But it was just nice to make that wild, footloose and fancy-free kind of uh, postulation theory, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I'm channeling Chris here. Um <laughs> trope maybe if it has actually come to pass maybe and instead you know we get shane ryback but i think on with that to our first case notes and that's a messy breakfast i loved the scene i thought it was absolutely <laughs> brilliantly played by janet mcteer where we have the noises going on upstairs while jessica is being given information i suppose from the doctor uh the good doctor that we now know um and all we hear is banging from upstairs, and then it cuts upstairs to what seems like a comedy movie or something out of Ash vs. Evil Dead, almost, where poor Alyssa is unable to control her powers to the point where she's smashing eggs, and then when she tries to throw them out, she steps on the pedal bin, which breaks, and then you just keep hearing smashing going on over and over again. I really do like this. I love that they've taken this as a bit of a comedy moment. Oh, it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Uh, just, like, the whole eggy smash. Um Just... <laughs> You know, you really feel Alicia's pain here that everyday activities become slightly more problematic when you're completely superpowered. Mm -hmm. You know, she puts the eggs down and smashes them all. And the frustration builds. You know, she she goes to put them in the bin and she smashes the pedal bin, um, as as you say. And then she just chucks the 
the eggs against the fridge, kicks the bin, and then you're <laughs> hearing even more crash bangs. Um, as you know, as going. yeah, exactly, as Carl and and Jessica are are having a kind of a you know a really sort of meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, both of them sort of raising their eyes to the ceiling in in the cell, and it just really alleviates that fairly deep conversation that they're having and and which is really really good as well and i think the great thing about this is that it is there's absolutely a comedy element in this but the way uh janet mcteer plays alicia is that you really feel the sense of frustration that she has um her eyes are so expressive here i I just thought it was fantastic and i love the punctuation to the joke from dr carl where he's going i think she's making breakfast as he hears the crashes bangs and wallops from upstairs Uh, this is obviously something he's experienced many many times but he does call out that this is usually something that can calm her down is doing a menial task or doing a specific task from the beginning to the end can usually calm her down Uh, it just seems like one thing can just push her over the edge as she slams the eggs down that's what pushes her over the edge to ruin the rest of the breakfast basically yeah and i think this is uh this is one of three for me Mm -hmm. and it really is i think her backseat driving in the taxi is phenomenal because it is just this moment where all the memories from 17 years ago come back she's in a car and this guy is on his mobile phone and not looking at the road and you know the ethical element of that she's saying we could have been killed someone else could have been killed he's not watching where he's going and just the interplay here you know and again it's played seriously and also there is a comedy uh or you know a dark comedy element here you know where he says keep your panties on he goes grown women do not wear panties jessica's scrambling to sort of take a grip of the situation because she thinks that and we all do even as the audience think that she's about to go hulk smash down Mm -hmm. on the taxi driver and do something really really uh regrettable i love jessica just getting her out of that situation as well i just think it's really funny it's like right stop right here we're getting out right now before this guy's head gets twisted around for for texting while driving and uh, good fun little moment it really reminded me of the big lebeski where we have uh, john <laughs> yeah. goodman having that argument about does nobody respect the rules anymore and eventually lebeski turns around to him and goes you're not wrong you're just an a-hole that is exactly what Alyssa's point is here She's not wrong. You shouldn't text and drive. Texting and driving kills people. If you're driving a car and people are paying you to drive them somewhere, you don't sit there on your phone and text in the middle of traffic while you're moving. You don't do it. But you don't shout at them either. <laughs> There's nothing that she's doing that's wrong. She's just being an a-hole about it. Yeah, and I think just the reaction of of Jessica is, is just so good. You know, she, she tells the taxi driver, get off the phone. And Jessica's like, you're a felon. But the two of them are getting to know one another. And I mean, just the consistent rolling of the eyes from Jessica is just priceless. Mm-hmm. Um, and like when they get out and she goes, you didn't murder him or anything, you know, kind of, we well should be done. thankful of yeah. that, you know, <laughs> really good. And I think the third one for me is the painting and getting to know Oscar. Um, and it's just so good because 
Jessica is uncomfortable anyway with this new relationship to mm-hmm. some extent. She, you know, she turned the, the, the picture that he had painted of her asleep around, um, in the, in the last episode mm-hmm. after he delivered it. Um, but here, you know, her mom absolutely loves it. You know, she, she's likening it to a, a, another, uh, artist, uh, in terms of the style. And she's using her knowledge of Spanish and speaking, uh, to, to Oscar. And it's just really nice because not only is Jessica, uh, just like uncomfortable with her mom doing that, she's also dealing with her own, uh, issues about, I suppose, ultimately getting closer to, uh, to Oscar. Yeah. And I mean, all of these things ultimately are just topped off for me with the rage monster is giving me advice to calm down <laughs> after Alicia tells her to calm down because she's just having a conversation with Oscar because it, it's preceded by her jumping onto the roof because there were police at the door mm-hmm. and Oscar has helped her find her way back down to here. And that's how they've gotten to know one another. Yeah. And it's just like nothing bad's happened, you know, just calm down. Um, and I love that from Jessica. The rage monster is giving me advice to calm down. So some really nice elements here, I think, with within our first case note of a messy breakfast. And yeah, nothing bad has happened except her mother, who she hasn't seen in 17 years, has come back from the dead, who's a monster that could kill people, has met her boyfriend in the hallway of the apartment block where they share... And is speaking to him in Spanish, which Jessica doesn't understand, as she as she points out. She only knows two words in Spanish, which are cerveza and enchilada, and that's all she needs. So effectively, she just walked in on her mother having a conversation with Oscar and not understood a word of it. Yet they're having a fun conversation where it's all light and airy uh, after Jessica thinking that her mother's going out in the streets and snapping people's necks. So, yes, nothing went wrong except everything that could possibly go wrong in Jessica's head. Yeah, exactly. Other than her not, at least she didn't kill anybody. Else. Exactly. <laughs> I love the fact that Alicia also likes Jessica's apartment. You know, she seems kind mm. of quite happy that her daughter has gone down this bohemian route, or so she thinks. It's just yeah. pure tragic neglect in a way. <laughs> um, it's only looking as good as it is because of Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I absolutely uh, loved just that kind of thing going on as well. Because she does point out that that's kind of what she wanted. She never wanted to be a suburban housewife. She never wanted to be someone that didn't live up to their potential and lived in the suburbs. Alyssa's words. Um, and And she feels that she can see in Jessica the things that she never had in her life. Uh, let's go on to point number two, because I think we're kind of straying in there anyway, John, with Jessica and Alyssa in the basement, their first kind of proper conversation. I really loved this scene. It's always good because it feels like a stage play when you have two people locked in a room together, having to talk to each other. And Janet McTeer does some great moments in here. She really has some really interesting moments. And so does Christian Ritter as she's playing this extremely angry version of Jessica Jones that we've seen in the past in previous shows. But this idea that Alyssa is telling her, I was protecting you. That's why I killed your boyfriend, basically. And Jessica is just losing it with her. She's trying to ignore her. She's trying to turn off. She's trying to switch away and ignore the fact that her mother's there. There is the mention in there. Since Chris isn't here, I'll do the, I'll do the, uh, the Easter egg moment. There is the mention of sending her mother to the raft. Yes. Which was where we saw our heroes 
other than Captain America, at the end of Captain America's Civil War. Um, they were all locked up in the raft. That's where all the super-powered people go and locked away in the middle of the ocean. So uh, so a nice little tie-in there. Yeah. There a lot of Captain America tie-ins, or a lot of Captain America mentions this season. Yeah. Anyone would think he's going to die in Infinity War. Or turn up in Jessica Jones season three. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> at the exactly. end of Jessica Jones. We haven't seen the end yet. So. Yeah, exactly. But I love the fact when... Um, Alicia says, you've got 17 minutes to, to ask your questions as well. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, because, you know, they're both trapped in this cellar. Um, Carl Malice has, has effectively locked them in when he's been told to flee with the dosh, uh, by Alicia. And I, it's a really nice interplay here. I love this kind of forced interplay between them. Mm-hmm. You know, it really just helps develop this relationship between these characters. I came out of that feeling, I can see why Jessica is conflicted as to whether to hand in her mom to the police. Mm-hmm. You know, she's actually called them anyway. So that was her first thought. And then there's some dialogue and some conversation. And even just the fact that uh, Alicia doesn't bow down to uh, Jessica because they're made from the same cloth. So she's just the same. She is stubborn and she will push her point, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the point where she says, well, you've got 70 minutes because the police will come to the door. She challenges uh, Jessica. And I think this is where you really see the two of them sort of being cut from the same cloth, really, when they're talking about malice. And, you know, Alicia is absolutely adamant. He saved us. Okay, it was gene sequencing. It was for a nefarious organization. But for Alicia, she spent 17 years with him mm-hmm. where he's been trying to help her manage her condition and ultimately that she's still alive because of him. But for Jessica, you know, again, she retorts back with, no, he destroyed us. And I think this is really good writing, really good dialogue, because, yes, in the end, I believe that what Jessica did um, in terms of leaving there and going to her apartment made sense. She is conflicted. And and she talks to her mum about that, saying, I don't know whether to hand you into the police or protect you, but mm-hmm. she's still figuring it out. And she says every fibre of her being is telling her to hand, hand her mother into the police. It is quite interesting looking at this particular episode. We've got some kind of big revelations about Alyssa and about Jessica's past in here. We've learnt now in this episode very specifically there is no villain right now, I suppose. Jessica finds out that Alyssa acted alone. She went out to protect herself and protect Dr. Carl and protect Jessica by killing the people that were learning too much about IGH. That's quite an interesting revelation. So we, as we said earlier on, we're eight episodes into the show and we're finding out that the villain isn't really a villain. They're not trying to cover up IGH because they're doing future experiments. They're trying to cover up their past so they're not found out. Which does raise the question, since Dr. Carl is taking responsibility for the creation of Alyssa, is he the villain of the, sh- of the show? Since by his creation of Alyssa and the aggression that that came with and the aggression that Jessica's come with, that's where all the murders have stemmed from. That's where all the killings that we've seen since the beginning of this show have come from. So does that mean that Carl Malice is the villain of this piece? but a very different villain than we've seen in any show or movie coming from Marvel. It's funny. Maybe, ultimately... Especially because he takes responsibility. Yeah, but that's what I mean. I think, ultimately, and maybe, um, 
there is no kind of villain. The villain are the relationships that people have. Okay, this is in a heightened sense, absolutely. Because, you know, you kind of looking at Cheng at the start, you know, the, the PI trying to take over Jessica's alias investigations, you kind of think, okay, well, what's that about? And then you've kind of got uh, Kozlov, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, Will Simpson is dead. Um, and you actually see a relationship between Carl Malice, um, both coming from the flashback as well, to this point in time where it's actually in its own way a really caring and a really loving relationship. I mean, I really enjoyed when Carl, in speaking to, to Jessica when she was um, tied to the bed, um, and and the breakfast was was being smashed up uh, in, on the floor above. Where he goes, I love her, but she scares the piss out of me. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is a nutshell. You and you see that relationship develop at the IGH facility in that flashback. And now all of a sudden, you realise that this guy, no longer employed by IGH, from what I can see, mm-hmm. maybe that's not entirely true, but who knows? He probably um, makes but, loads of money out of um, selling that weed that he's growing in his bed. Yeah, exactly. Um, is caring for her to manage her um, rage issues and actually is trying to keep other people safe. Okay, he ultimately confesses that he knew about it, but just decided he couldn't sort of bring it up in a way. He wanted to just kind of bury it. Yeah. But that is, and you know, and Jessica finding that escape route to, to leave before the police arrive, um, is that that's Alicia doing things off her own back. Yeah, but as you say, Cheng's associate, Kozlov, Simpson, were all murdered by Alyssa, and Carl is taking responsibility for creating her, for her creation. So that makes him the villain of the show. Uh, there's, there's, I can't think of anybody else that it could be other than him right now. We're eight episodes into the show. I guess maybe the person who's shooting at them at the end of the episode could be somebody brand new being introduced. That's what Luke Cage did uh, back in season one of Luke Cage. They decided to bring in the main villain for the show or another main villain for the show towards the end of that show. Um, but it would seem, it would seem odd that there'll be another person coming in here. It seems like this is just taking a completely different detour here around it and giving us these different versions of villains, people that do accept what they've done and don't intend on harm, but create harm anyway. But we do learn some other very important information that we didn't know in the past about Jessica's parents. Um, We hear from Melissa that the parents are going to get a divorce because they were on completely different paths. She wanted to have a different different career and her, her father wouldn't let her. That's quite interesting because back in season one, we hear her neighbor talking about the fights that she overheard the parents having all the time. And then when confronted about it by Kilgrave, she says, no, I just wanted to hurt Jessica. But now we find out there were fights in the house. Yeah, and Philip had kind of come in on one of these, so Philip knew, and Alicia is saying that's when he started to act out. And again, it is that, you know, time brings maybe rosy memories that maybe were not as rosy as you thought. And of course, why wouldn't they when Jessica feels that her life is sort of going down the toilet anyway? Mm. Um, you know, that's what she clings to. That's what she holds dear. Of course. That pre-accident, um, 
family structure. And then here we have this idea of resentment from the fact that Alicia thought she could be lecturing rather than teaching dropouts, resentment from her husband because she was too overbearing, wanted to do more than he was willing to do. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that, you know, they were trying to keep this secret from their kids, but one of them finds out and some really interesting um dynamics within that family. But Jessica is clinging to a more perfect version of that than actually existed. Yeah. Yeah. And again, just so well played by both of these characters. So I think that's about everything on Jessica and Alyssa so far in the episode. John, do you want to take us on to point three? Yes. Case note three, Jerry finds a new case. Mm-hmm. Um This is, Really, really good because I am totally invested in Jerry and Inez uh, as uh, this dysfunctional pairing that's come together, been forced together. But ultimately, uh, Inez and her information has helped Jerry uh, go to to really seek out then this man, uh, Rybeck. I just thought it was fantastic seeing uh, Jerry in the prison with Shane Ryback mm-hmm. and, uh, and really, you know, the confidence that she has in her professional ability, uh, coupled to the fact that she knows she has this degenerative terminal illness with ALS. And I thought it was fascinating, uh, to, to see. And I think in particular, then the ramifications that that has on Jerry and Inez, you know, Jerry is about to kick Inez out of, of the apartment, you know, and again, Inez, some really great lines here about, you know, giving out about her rye bread uh, and her multigrain toast that she uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we really get to, to see Jerry's character here, you know, that she, she was bullied as a kid. She built everything from nothing. She was from a trailer home and, and all of this. And of course, she tries to kick out, um, Inez before she goes to see Ryback. Um, but I, I love that moment where, you know, Jerry's talking about her, her past history and Inez ultimately says, well, irrespective, she's being kicked out. She goes, you can die a cripple in your fancy glass box that you built from nothing, you know, really pointed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do actually think that jerry appreciates that she is not cowing to jerry's confidence or her power i think there's an element of equals here in their own way i mean even to the extent where inez provides everything puts it back into the bag that jerry had bought for her Mm -hmm. and all those clothes and i just thought it was really really great um i love this dynamic i really do and and even more so than Will Jerry and Inez be a thing? I don't know. Probably not. I have a s- suspicion that Inez is going to meet some kind of really horrendous end. Oh, no. But I hope she doesn't. And I really hope that they kind of do connect, actually. I love that moment on the couch. You know, Jerry's come back from seeing Shane Ryback. He's touched her. She knows that he's genuine mm-hmm. um, fr- from that touch. And she's celebrating there with her $200 champagne. And Inez is enjoying that human touch, that that feeling of, of, of Jerry effectively, you know, 
touching her scars, kissing her scars, going uh, along her leg. Um, and I thought the music was phenomenal for this scene. Um, just the way it really worked with that scene, it was kind of almost disconcerting and um, it, it almost was foreboding. It, it wasn't any kind of happy go lucky or joyful music there was an edge to it and i think that these two have an edge and i'm really really enjoying it yeah i must say really really enjoyed these scenes i'm gonna say something that you're not gonna like though john oh no <laughs> it reminded me of a very popular film from the late 80s can you guess which film that was john no pretty woman there is is a little bit of it just because we always joke about the fact that pretty woman is about a hooker that's picked up by a businessman and it basically tells women to be hookers and you may find the man of your dreams you know essentially you've got inez here who has lived on the streets said that she's been approached repeatedly by loads of men on the streets because being a woman on the streets is more difficult than anything else and now she's landed in an apartment being given $200 champagne it really does feel like that dynamic that was there between Julia Roberts and Richard Gere back in that 80s movie which I really dislike but I like what they've done with the concept in this yeah it feels like you know in some senses someone like Jerry wouldn't actually be afraid to tell the people around her yeah, I found this girl. She's the right woman for me because the two of us have the right minds that are able to battle against each other and have they have that kind of right sense of character. That doesn't feel like Jerry would be ashamed of the fact that she found her in this way. Whereas one of the conceits of that film is that he's trying to change her to make her fit in with his society. Yeah, it's like Pygmalion or something. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean... Thankfully, I didn't take Pretty Woman from it. Mm -hmm. I do kind of maybe see what you mean. She's not a hooker. Absolutely not. not. um, Different there. And and just for everyone out there, the reason I have beef with uh, Pretty Woman is because I was forced to watch it so, so many times. I love my sister dearly. I absolutely do. But she really enjoyed that movie. And um, I suppose I did at the start. And then the deadness kicked in. Um, (laughs) It really did. So I would think less Pretty Woman, probably more Lady in the Tramp to some extent. I think the reason why I really like this is because... Actually, from season one, you could argue that Jerry's partner previously was also an equal in terms of at least on a professional footing. Certainly her first wife was. Yeah. yeah. And I, and you know, obviously that ended badly in a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, here, I think it's the surprise Jerry has that this person who she initially would never even consider being her equal is not taking any of her bullshit mm-hmm. is actually um really focusing in on who Jerry is and doesn't actually want to pander to her advances in the sense that you know she put all the clothes back in the bags that Jerry had bought and said here you go and you know Jerry's kind of like goes flippantly well you're not walking out of the apartment like that because she's just dressed in a t-shirt and and the underwear that she's not going to return and she says it's almost like don't be stupid i've washed and my clothes that i came in are in the dryer like she's kind of going do you think i'm that stupid and i think it's possibly that that is the difference here is that 
Jerry's treating it actually slightly disrespectfully Absolutely. here, but Inez just won't take that crap from her, really. And I think that's why I find it so fascinating, this. Um, you know, Jerry goes to see Shane Ryback on the basis of Inez, you know, initially being a little cagey about what she divulged and then opened up more as uh, she found out that she had ALS. And then, you know, there's still that kind of you need to get out. And then Jerry sort of relishing in the fact that she knows he can heal her. Um is offering this $200 champagne for her. And yeah, who knows where this is going to go, but I am definitely team Inez. <laughs> I think she's fantastic. She is She is absolutely great, but totally understandable why Jerry wouldn't believe that this woman that she's brought into her home would have the exact right healer for her. I'm really interested in Shane Ryback as well. Really I'm trying to work out what this would do to him. We've heard in the past that by curing Inez, he was in serious pain, but she only had a broken back. Only, I say, not ever having a broken back myself. But that's all that he was curing her from. We've got Jerry who's got a terminal illness here. So what would that do to him if he's curing someone that has a terminal illness that can't be cured by conventional medicine? What would doing that do to him? Well, I love the fact that he recoiled from her Mm -hmm. as soon as he was sensing, I I suppose, what she had, the condition she had. It's fascinating. I can't wait to see what happens in the next episode. Like, I do wonder, he says, he shouts out to the guard saying he's feeling sick, he wants to get out. Is he just having exactly the same feeling that she has? We heard earlier on, back in the episode where she was in the prison with with Jessica, we heard her say she's holding back sick all the time. She's holding back puking all the time. Is that what he's experiencing where he's suddenly feeling really, really like he wants to throw up? Or is it something more than that? Is he feeling a, a much worse, worse version of that pain? I'm intrigued to find out how that goes. Definitely. I'm really looking forward to that in the coming episodes to really see how that plays out. Um, yeah, on to case note number four. Mm-hmm. Malcolm investigates. Yes. Malcolm's getting a bit of a groove on with regards to all this um really supportive teaching that Jessica is providing. Yeah. Um, you know, Jessica's cancelled this IGH investigation now, um, of which like Trish has really taken kind of exception to this. Yeah. But you know, Malcolm starts to kind of go and moves into Jerry's case in terms of digging out the dirt on Benowitz and Chow. I enjoyed a lot of elements of of this for absolute sure. Um, Firstly, Malcolm's abs, you know, they're in there. What's not to like? Although, Derek, you did think he was chubby, which is really weird to think. (sighs) Not this Uh, episode. He's been working out. What, since episode three? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Go, Malcolm. I love his interaction with Trish here. Just because at the start, you know, he's really um, asking, what are you doing? You wouldn't hide this IGH inhaler. Uh, You're behaving erratically. You know, you would be honest and and just say it if it wasn't an addiction. What are you trying to hide? Trish retorts with, I I wouldn't inform Jessica if I'd had four espressos. But just how that lends itself to what happens after Malcolm has been investigating Benowitz, I think is really, really good. Like, it's really important here, and I know they've pointed out a number of times during the show that he has the past, he has his history with drugs in the past. 
But it's really important here. If you have a character like Trish sleeping with Malcolm and she's going down this path of taking the inhaler, you have to have that moment where he calls her out on it and goes, I can see the difference in you. I've been down this path before. Nobody takes drugs because they're going to get addicted and become a heroin addict or an addict of anything. People take drugs because of the feeling that it gives them. And this is exactly what Malcolm must have been experiencing while he was going through his drug haze. I just think it's interesting to have the two of them butt heads about it. And as you say, John, when Malcolm gets attacked outside of the gay bar later on and Trish arrives and beats up the attackers and then gives Malcolm the inhaler and talks him into taking it, it was so easy for her to get him to take the inhaler. And that's really important. Malcolm has always said he's an addict all the way throughout the show. Of course, he's going to take this opportunity if he's being told that don't worry about it. It's just like, you know, it'll just enhance your abilities a bit. And the moment Malcolm realizes what the inhaler has done to him is fantastic. Yeah, this absolutely. is absolutely, this is probably the best filmed scene in the show so far for me. I think it's absolutely brilliant as he turns to her, tells her to get away from him and then runs away across a road as the camera is just focused on his face crossing a road in New York. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Filmed. I, I completely agree. I think the camera work around this scene um it, it is so good you know it's jerky it's trying to focus on him but he's moving into the edges of, of, of the shot and mm-hmm. um, it comes back you know and it, it's kind of fully jerky and then you know he's screaming before it moves to the next scene yeah you know that what he's done he is disappointed with himself or you know and it's taking effect as well that this whole thing even before there's a moment where he's been beaten up and the camera really feels like it's in the action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought it was phenomenal um, because he gets slammed against the wall and he it's like he does something to his shoulder. I just thought it was really, really good. But just coming back to that scene where he's running down and the camera's all over the place. The thing that that reminded me of, and in my view, this is high praise indeed uh, in terms of that quality of, of the the footage of how the scene is set, how it's captured, is that it reminded me of The Dark Knight where the Joker has his head out of the window of the police car after he's just escaped the police precinct and he it's all washing around mm-hmm. and with the sound. And here, that camera movement of how it captures him running down the, the alleyway it is different. It's not exactly the same, but I just thought that in itself embodies what he's going through is that it's jarring. It, it, it's, it's slightly out of shot. Right. And, and that is what he is experiencing. I thought it was really phenomenal. Um, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things I felt with that scene from the dark night. Um, which I, to me, is still one of my favorite kind of cinema shots uh, ever. So, so I really, really enjoyed this, to be honest. That's a very interesting picture. Nice. Uh, and onto the actual investigation part of what Malcolm was doing. I just like how this is written. I like the fact that he has learned something that Benowitz is embarrassed about. He's learned the fact that, uh, even though he's married and has kids, he's going out to gay bars, picking up guys, taking them wherever he's taking them. But he doesn't use that to get at Benowitz. He uses the idea that he knows about it, says he's working for Chow, and is trying to get information on Chow from Benowitz by using it. So he's not blackmailing him. He's actually saying to him, 
I don't care about this. You need to go and tell your family and get out of that situation because you're on the wrong side of history right now. But he's saying to him, Chow sent me. I know about this. You're embarrassed about it. So why don't you tell me something about Chow? I really liked that. I thought that was a nice turn, a nice, nice yeah. twist on it. It's such a good treatment of, of what he's doing and then how he moves it forward. And, mm. um, you know, he's not going to do the bribery thing. He's, it, he actually uses it to get information on Chow yeah. that he would use uh, because he, he's kind of looking at it going, this is too personal. Yes. I love the fact that the, the receipt item chocolate bar is in fact a gay club. Um, this is just so, so good. That's funny. And I do like the fact that Benowitz calls it out as well. He goes, you think we've progressed, uh, but there are still people like the three um, homophobic guys who are sort of challenging mm-hmm. uh, both him and uh, Malcolm in the alleyway. And I, I think that's um, it's an interesting take because in, in, in the sense that, you know, there is so much positivity coming from how Malcolm deals with the situation. And then Benowitz kind of just undercuts it slightly with, say, but there are still people that wouldn't do it the way you've just done it there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not that he knows that, and but I think the subtext of this is is so well done, um, and I did think this was just fascinating. And you know, Fergus loving Malcolm, um, and he has just like rocketed into being um, a personal hero. Absolutely, and I've never been more excited to see Trish beat somebody up other than those three guys outside of yeah. game. That was hilarious and really good. A Cat, good fight. Yeah, and cat scratches. Loved that on the face, on the face. of one of them, yeah, yeah. where you get the kind of the the cat scratches. Yeah, yeah, she's turning into a crazy kitty. It was a really good moment there. What we do find out is that Chow has a shell corporation working for her called Caxton, which weirdly and i'm sure they would have known this it is actually a real new york investment broker i don't know whether they're very happy about having their name being used as a shell corporation for uh for chow but i have a feeling considering how many investment uh bankers or investment brokers there are in new york that i don't think you could pick any name without it being an actual real life uh investment brokers in new york to be honest so i don't think it was intended i'm sure they have that line at the end of the credits saying no no uh real life people were involved in this story um but poor caxton but we'll probably find out more about those as uh, malcolm investigates them in future uh, let's go on to our final kind of minor point because it is the big cliffhanger moment so there's not a huge amount to talk about on it but our final case note is shots ringing out the best cliffhanger in this season so far, I think. Uh, we did have the reveal of I'm Your Mother to Jessica back in episode seven, but the shots ringing out into Jessica's alias investigations where uh, both Alyssa and Jessica are having a almost tender moment. Almost. Because Jessica still criticizes her mom for wasting good whiskey and, and some coffee. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the fact that until the gunshot sounded out and cut through the the sort of semi-tension that was going on between these two, which really made me want to sort of move immediately to the next episode. Um, the, the tension was being cut with whiskey um, and its use. It was just so, so good. You know, we find out here, 
you need three times the amount of booze to take the edge off, you know? Um, the, there's a move from high-end whiskey. I suppose this is the whiskey watch, actually. Yeah. Earlier in the episode where I think, uh, Jessica is polishing off a, a bottle of the tin cup. Uh, and then we're moving on to the old knob creek, um, that she has on her shelf as well. Um, but that is kind of, relaxing the the tension between the two and you are you're kind of just breathing out you know it seems like yes there's a lot to to work out here but the two of them are having a really um nice bit of dialogue and then the bullet comes through the window grazes um jessica as she tries to save her mom and it's obviously targeted at her mom uh before that it's it's cut through her her cup and but you see the rage then that comes in alicia's eyes um after that and you're just thinking who is the person behind the the trigger here because i have no idea quite frankly it's interesting you say it was targeted Alyssa. I didn't take that at all. I just thought that Jessica had made some more enemies. She seemed tends to have a lot of enemies in the city. Interesting. I just thought either it was at both of them or at Jessica, to be honest, because who knows Alyssa in this city? Uh, I'm really intrigued to find out who uh, who this was. There is some other just interesting moments there between the two of them. I like earlier on in the episode where Jessica says to Alyssa, your face is not my mom's face, but when I close my eyes and hear your voice, I'm taken back to a time that we were together. Uh, we hear in this moment her mother humming in the kitchen she's humming hey ain't we got fun obviously the name of the episode and the the tune that her mother keeps playing on the piano before she smashed that up uh, back in episode six um it's a lovely little moment as jessica is sitting there listening to her mother hum in the kitchen where she can't see her face and realizing this is definitely her mother this is the woman that brought her up and she loved and had all those warm feelings for for 17 years until she came back with the revelation that it was her that ruined Jessica's life um, and that she's super powered and that she has an aggression she can't control and that she keeps murdering people. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. quite a lot of revelations to deal with. And I kind of understand Jessica's position, obviously, but I do like those kind of warm moments for Jessica where she's able to understand who her mother is and bask in a little bit of that that comfort that comes from a mother. Definitely. I really enjoy the connection that these two make, however kind of screwed up it may be, because, mm-hmm. you know, her mum has murdered people. Jessica is kind of really struggling with what to do. You know, she's fighting her instinct. But it, it is that moment, as you say, where it's like, I don't recognize you, mm-hmm. um, that she says it in the, the cellar of the house, but I recognize the voice. Yeah. And you see in that moment where she's humming, ain't we got fun? She recognizes the memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it brings her to that special time. So this is a really interesting moment because in a sense, connections have been made between these two. Um, and here then it's under threat by this shot ringing out. And it's like, as far as I'm concerned, like, who the hell is it? I know. All so right. I'm really interested to see the next episode where hopefully we will find more. As you say, one of those moments where it was like, I really want to watch episode nine. But yeah, in the spirit of Defenders TV podcast, I pushed my urge down and 
Hit the bottle of Knob Creek instead. <laughs> Good stuff. Right, that's the end of our case notes. That means we almost get to go off and uh, watch episode nine. Uh, just one quick note about the episode. I thought it was quite interesting. You kind of mentioned it there, but Alyssa saying to Jessica as she pours out another glass of whiskey, saying to her, it takes three times the amount of booze to take the edge off, doesn't it? I was getting a bit of another reference to Captain America where he's lost the friends that he's made just before he comes becomes Captain America and then tries to get himself drunk to forget what's going on or to console himself and then realizes that he can't imbibe alcohol the way he used to. He can never get drunk again, effectively. I don't know why. It just feels like a Captain America moment here where you're realizing, actually, Jessica does drink a lot of booze, but potentially what's happened to her means that it doesn't affect her as much as it would affect, well, basically all the rest of us. You see Jessica going out in the past till 5, 6 a.m., not realizing a new day has begun. But maybe that is because it doesn't affect her as much as it would affect me, I suppose. Well, I'm still getting over the fact that you used imbibe. Um, I thought we were heading into Gone with the Wind territory here. <laughs> I have to admit, it's not Gone with the Wind. It's Placebo that gave me the word ah, imbibe. Okay. So. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, yeah. But keeping it on the the whiskey theme notes i really love that moment where jessica says gene editing didn't improve your taste in booze uh, <laughs> as they share a bottle of the cheap kind of sangria uh, in, in the basement mm-hmm. and of course we re- find out that jessica jones loved nirvana as well in her youth so, yes I, yeah. lo- I loved that moment when her mom says to her you used to listen to those depressing rock bands and jessica goes nirvana wasn't depressing and her mom responds with didn't the lead singer kill himself (laughs) which is totally totally true obviously uh that's it for all of our case notes and our final notes uh john do you defend jessica jones season two episode eight aka ain't we got fun i really really do i I really like this episode um i'd give it 4.5 rage monsters out of five yes for me, it's just the relationships here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of them just sort of done so well. Loads of interesting points. Um, from Jerry and Inez that, I mean, I really hope they get together. I really hope Inez doesn't, um, get killed. You know, I've kind of got a protective little thing for Inez because mm. I'm really enjoying this character and I love her even more by the fact that um, I think that relationship with Jerry is so interesting. That was just fantastic. Seeing Jerry as well head to find Shane Rye back as well. Uh, Malcolm and Trisha at this moment, you know, from one night stand, probably not what Malcolm wanted to, you know, a complete freak out by Malcolm, uh, where he's been given this, uh, IGH inhaler by, by Trish. Really, really good. And I think the whole thing around Benowitz is just so well done uh, in the writing and in the execution of that. The thing I'm kind of intrigued about is when will this inhaler run out ultimately? Yeah. Uh, what's going to happen there? And to have uh, Jessica Jones and Alicia Jones uh, work together, you know, confined within the cellar, confined within their own memories, uh, all just playing out these different uh, past and 
experiences and the shared history they have as i say at the start and i haven't actually really brought it up it's just i didn't feel they treated sterling as much as i thought they would have done or that jessica would have um you know really made a point of that being a significant moment in her life maybe um they did bring it up ultimately but i wondered whether they should have played that out more um and then finally with the shots ringing out who is this person behind the trigger at this moment i'm really not sure who it is and i can't wait for the next uh, episode so derek do you defend this episode of jessica jones on that exact note yes i definitely defend it you've heard my thoughts i really enjoyed it I want to go and see the next episode. Really looking forward to it. But the two-hander here between Janet McTeer and Kristen Ritter is just fantastic. It's it's what you pay the price of admission for. It's fantastic. Loving seeing those two characters work together. So much good stuff in this episode, but talked all about it. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Defenders TV Podcast. But I think that's enough on this episode of Jessica Jones. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure that you go over to our website at defenderstvpodcast.com and subscribe to the podcast on any sober or drunken podcast catcher. Loads available over there. Uh, if you haven't taken your opportunity to get a code for Stitcher Premium, go to stitcher.com slash premium, enter our code defenders. It will help to support the podcast and you'll be able to listen to the 10 episode Wolverine, the long night podcast uh, as part of that deal. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, absolutely. We will be back with our review of Jessica Jones, Season 2, Episode 9, a.k.a. Shark in the Bathtub, Monster in the Bed. Mm, I know, I like that title. Next week for our Jessica Jones coverage. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for listening. As always, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm off to make breakfast, eggy smash. (laughs) Um, But we will speak with you again soon next time. Bye. (laughs) 